0: My name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to Things Observed, the podcast that is ran by me, Luke Marshall. And we are coming back from a hot one. Everybody seemed to enjoy the abiotic oil episode. Everybody loved it, except for a handful of people on Twitter who wanted to accuse me of smoking dope and telling me to put the pipe down. For some reason, that's what all the naysayers were saying, is, what are you smoking? Put down the pipe and i ain't a dope smoker i'm not smoking any dope and even if i was would that invalidate the soviet scientists who worked hard to bring us abiotic oil theory i don't think so but anyhow we're coming back from a hot one i hit it out the park and now i'm stepping back up to the plate so hopefully we can knock another one out of the park and everybody likes this episode as much as they liked the last one Anyhow, you know it's funny. I did the abiotic oil episode, and I find the theory persuasive, but I'm not even smart enough to necessarily conclude that it's a hundred percent true for myself. I just put it out there as something that I've been thinking about, something that I think is interesting and most of the time when I talk about subjects, it's stuff that I'm pretty well versed in stuff that I tend to be more knowledgeable about, and the first time that I'm kind of talking a little bit out of my ass, the first time that I am not, uh, not that I'm an expert on anything, but you know, the first time that I'm not as well versed in a subject, of course, that's the one that really ends up getting a lot of attention, and I had people on Twitter who were trying to argue with me, and what have you, so I thought that that was kind of funny, but anyhow, I'm stepping back up to the plate, The pitcher is looking at me. He's winding back, and now all there is left for me to do is to keep my eye on the ball. So anyhow, today we're talking about the 2001 Anthrax attacks. The attacks that happened right after 9-11, but are not remembered as well as 9-11. People just seem to forget that one. But they never forgot the 9 11 attacks. So, anyways, we are going to go real deep into it. But just to kind of set the backdrop, we had the three towers collapse from two different planes, we have a plane hit the Pentagon we have a plane that is downed in shanksville pennsylvania the whole nation is in terror we have the bush administration who is wanting to scale back civil liberties in order to to, you know fight the terrorist evil there's talks about invading the middle east shortly after 9 11 the u.s will invade afghanistan the nation is terrified there's talks about a second attack coming in the near future. Maybe Al-Qaeda will strike again. So that is where the nation is at when we are talking about the 2001 anthrax attacks. So the anthrax attacks began in September of 2001, you know, shortly after the 9-11 attacks and victims would start to be identified from the anthrax attacks on October 3rd. And would continue being identified through November 20th. And so 22 people were thought to have been infected with anthrax. 11 with inhalation anthrax. And 11 with cutaneous anthrax. And all of these people are thought to have... um, All of these people who got infected are thought to have got it as a result of letters sent with dried spores through the mail. Um, So the bacteria... Bacillus anthracis is a single-celled microorganism that has an active state, which means that it can reproduce and that it can take nutrients. But when it is in a dormant state, it means that there is no metabolic activity going on. So dormant anthrax cells are referred to as spores, and the DNI, the DNI, the DNA. Man, I'm not even getting anyhow the the word spells itself out dna inside is protected by a coat so as a disease anthrax can take form cutaneously by like entering through a cut or something like that and it results in swelling in the area it gets all black and nasty when forms with a black scab in that area one can also get anthrax um, through ingestion and that can result in gastrointestinal anthrax and then the final way of getting anthrax is inhalation anthrax so you breathe that in and that is the one that is most likely to get you got so don't go around huffing anthrax it is a not a good high from what i hear so Anyways, those are the three, and I know anthrax can't get you high. I'm just joshing around here. But anyway, those are the three forms of anthrax. And the one that comes to mind for most people when you're thinking of anthrax is inhalation anthrax. You get some strange letter in the mail that says, you know, Israel is great, or Israel sucks, death to Israel, death to America. And all of a sudden, you have a cloud of anthrax around you, you're breathing it in then you're dying before too long. That's kind of what we think of when we think of anthrax. So anthrax spores of the bacillus variety are some of the hardiest cells in all of existence. And due to this and how pathogenic it is, It has long been of interest to people who are wanting to have a biological weapon who are wanting to conduct biological warfare so in world war one germany attempted to use it against enemy livestock and then during world war ii the allies would actually make plans this is pretty crazy to drop anthrax infected cattle cakes that you know the cows would get it they'd get in And this would restrict the food supply. In addition, they would also drop anthrax bombs on German cities, which were estimated to be capable of killing up to three million people, but that plan never came to fruition. And so research into anthrax would persist through the Cold War And according to author Graham McQueen, who is the author of the 2001 Anthrax Deception, a case for a domestic conspiracy, which is going to be one of my main resources today, he would um, explain that it would be one of the most studied aspects in all of biological warfare. And so the Geneva Protocol in 1925 would prohibit the use of bioweapons, But it said nothing about stockpiling or developing new methods, and so it ultimately did not get the job done that it sought out to do, which was to restrict biological weapons. They were still being made. But then there was the Biological Weapons Convention of 1972, which was more specific that would actually call for having inspections of states who were a party to the convention, Um, but bush would reject this protocol on july 25th 2001 so not that long before the anthrax attacks would end up taking place but now let's get back to the attacks so we've got 11 with inhalation anthrax 11 with cutaneous anthrax you know 22 people are thought to be infe- Infected in total and five people would die as a result of this attacks of these attacks um, There's Robert Stevens who was a photo editor in Florida There is Thomas Morris jr. A postal worker at a mail so- mail sorting facility in Washington and his co-worker Joseph cursing jr then there's Kathy Nguyen a New York hospital employee and Audalee Lundgren an elderly woman woman and a resident of Connecticut and these first letters were postmarked September 18th from Princeton and they went to media companies NBC News CBS News The New York Times ABC News and The New York Post so on September 22nd, people at these locations began to develop skin lesions, but it was not yet diagnosed as anthrax. And Stevens was the first person to be diagnosed, and he would be diagnosed on October 3rd after arriving at a hospital the day prior. And a press conference would be held on the 4th, and he would die the following day. So according to the FBI, nobody prior to October 3rd Knew of any anthrax attacks and this is important because we will delve later into the What I would say the very high? Probability if not just downright fact that there were people who had foreknowledge of coming anthrax attacks So keep that date in mind October 3rd no one prior to October 3rd knew anything of any anthrax attacks going on and so this will later we will bring the fbi and mainstream media's narrative into question so just keep that in mind no one prior to october 3rd so sometime between october 6th and the 8th a more refined and deadly batch of letters would be sent to senators thomas daschle and patrick Leahy. on the 15th the fbi would analyze the daschle letter and multiple people would be confirmed to have been exposed to anthrax in the Hart Senate building from the Daschle letter. So the Dashiell letter would not be found for some time afterwards, um, after letters were isolated from the building. And so initially after Stephen's death, the government was saying there was no evidence that an act of terrorism had occurred. But it wasn't long before talk began that this was the second act of terrorism With 9-11 being the first. So, after 9-11, talk of war was being feverishly bolstered across the media. You have, you know, your neocon politicians, whether it be Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, Cheney, you name them, Bush himself... ...who were making the most out of the recent tragedy and framing it as an act of war rather than a crime to be investigated. Which is very important. They didn't really want an investigation going on into 9-11. But by declaring it an act of war, then what else is there to do besides go to war and not have time to question anything... ...to look into, you know, who actually did the attacks how the attacks were actually carried out, possibly find inconsistencies in the story. No, it was an act of war, and the only thing that made sense was to invade the Middle East. So the anthrax attacks that followed the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, they would only further heighten the already existing fear and paranoia and wartime fervor That was already present in spades and so two days after the death of Stevens the US would launch its first strike in Afghanistan and it's important to keep in mind so I I think people a lot of the time for forget this probably not in our circles but I think a lot of the times that people forget that the de facto Afghani government the Taliban The Taliban offered to turn over Osama bin Laden to the U.S. if they provided evidence of his guilt for the 9-11 attacks. But Bush framed it as, we don't negotiate with the terrorists, and they did not provide any evidence that Osama did the attacks, and so nothing would, would come of it. But it's very interesting that from the get-go, the Taliban was like, we will turn over Osama bin Laden if you can show us that he did the 9-11 attacks. And so for all the talk there was of we got to get Osama bin Laden, it doesn't seem like they really cared that much. They were you know, much more concerned with continuing to conduct strikes against Afghanistan, send troops over there. What-have-you so the October following the 9-11 attacks would also be the same month that the neocons were working to hurry the Patriot Act Through Congress and it would also be the same month that Bush authorized the first ever Approval for NSA bulk spying which the American public would not learn about until quite a while later this is also the time where you know Islamophobia was in vogue after 9-11 attacks And this was also being used by neoconservatives to garner support for their pre-existing plans in the Middle East, along with just the fear of this kind of amorphous enemy, the terrorism, the war on terror. You know, you can't exactly pin it down to any one particular state or something like that. We're going to war with an idea. So... Something that will start to change the way that we might think about the anthrax attacks is to dive a little bit into the letters That were sent to the senators, you know, Dashiell and Lay's um, and their relationship to the Patriot Act So on September on September, excuse me 12th only a day after the attacks on the Twin Towers in the Pentagon Bush would meet with congressional leaders and he would be discussing the necessity of a uh, of a resolution that would allow the U.S. to use force. And so Daschle, who was the Senate the Senate Majority Leader, a Democrat, um, he would let it be known that he would be willing to propose such a resolution before Congress, but he would get the bill forwarded to him, and when he took a look at the bill, he was perturbed by the language that would basically permit Bush and his administration to go And this is, quote, anywhere, anytime against anyone, the Bush administration or any subsequent administration deemed capable of carrying out an attack. And so what would Dashell do? Well, he would modify the resolution just a little bit to restrict the focus more on those who were deemed to be the perpetrators behind the 9-11 attacks, as opposed to just, you know, we can go anywhere, anytime, do anything we want, uh, kind of more laissez-faire language of the initial resolution so even with the modifications I think that it should be said that the resolution still gave Bush great powers and it allowed him to assume his role as commander-in-chief so as we'll dive a little bit deeper into Daschle, um, it's it's interesting that It's not even like he was like explicitly 100% against the Patriot Act. He would just, we'll get into it, but he'll just kind of slow the process up. Wants to make slight modifications, but even that is enough to put him in great danger and is not something that pleased the neocons all that much. But anyways, not long after, on September 17th, Attorney General John Ashcroft declared that he would be giving an anti-terrorism proposal to Congress and that he would seek for Congress to pass it through within the week which that in and of itself is crazy especially when you take into account the length of the Patriot Act uh, you know it's like how long had they had this thing ready to go and they were just you know i guess waiting for some sort of perfect incidents to incident to come along and give them the excuse to try and push it through so they won't he ashcroft wants to get it through in a week pretty ridiculous and congress would receive the proposal on wednesday the 12th and so daschle was dismayed that congress was expected to pass this through by friday with no time to really review its contents and lay would say that if the constitution is shredded the terrorists win so Dashell would also say that he would have to work to have a better draft ready for the September uh, for September the twenty fifth, and that the hearings would then commence on the bill. So we can see that Dashell is starting to slow the process a little bit, which is not going to make people like Ashcraft, Ashcroft, and others in the executive wing of the government very happy. So despite Dashell's schedule. Um, that it was already being expedited it still wasn't fast enough for some and dashwell would say that ashcroft attacked democrats for delaying passage of this bill and so pressure would begin to i guess pressure would continue to mount for congress to pass the bill with bush discussing the importance of the bill and then rumors in the media of a future attack by al-qaeda were beginning to Happen and a possible bioweapon attack that may even include an attack with a crop dusting plane So we have all this crazy stuff that's going on in the media and we will talk in Much more detail here in just a little bit about a lot of the rumor mongering that was going on in the mainstream media so the legislation would run into difficulty on September 24th because it would come in for critique by both the house and the Senate and Ashcroft would say, terrorism is a clear and present danger to Americans today. And he would also say that each day that so passes is a day that terrorists have an advantage. So Bush would say on the 25th, we're at war. And in order to win the war, we must make sure the law enforcement men and women have got the goals, got the tools necessary. Um, I, should, I wish I had a good Bush accent i was about to try bush but i could already tell that i was gearing up more for bill clinton i don't know why that is but anyways um cheney would meet with republican senators to ask them to see to it that the legislation went through by october 5th so we can see that the date keeps getting pushed back a little bit still for a bill like the patriot act this is all still very expedited but we have the neoconservative faction in government especially in the executive wing of government who is getting very very pissed off about this delay and so rumors are continuing to mount about a potential biological attack we have articles by the new york times it was actually a front page article from september 30th saying some experts say u.s is vulnerable to a germ attack And so we have all this fear of another terrorism event that's going to go on. The second part in a two-part punch from Al-Qaeda with 9-11 being the first. And we have people like Ashcroft and Bush and Cheney and Woolsey and all these different people who are pushing this fear-mongering. So Ashcroft would actually go on to CBS News to further seed the idea of a possible attack by al-qaeda and others like the and others like uh, white house chief of staff andrew card would spread fear that al-qaeda may be found may be found the means to use chemical or biological weapons these people seem to be pretty prescient in their warnings always so now i'm going to read a quote from mcqueen in the 2001 anthrax deception The press had carried out articles throughout this period about biological attacks and anthrax. On September 28th, for example, Rick Wise of the Washington Post had written of the need to make an anthrax vaccine available to the public. Clinics across the country, he explained, were being swamped with requests for the vaccine. It is in this context that Leigh and Dashiell's actions on October 2nd must be understood. On that day, it was determined that the administration's October 5th deadline would not be met. Both senators were directly implicated in the delay. The Washington Post on October 3rd gave the gist in the title of an important article on the subject, Anti-Terrorism Bill Hits Snag on the Hill, Dispute Between Senate Democrats and White House. In this article, we learned that Leahy accused the White House of reneging on an agreement. The issue was a provision setting out rules under which law enforcement agencies could share wiretap and grand jury information with intelligence agencies. Leigh had been under the impression that his negotiations with the White House had produced an acceptable compromise. Suddenly, he discovered the compromise had been rejected. As Leahy balked, Attorney General John D. Ashcroft accused the Democratic-controlled Senate of delaying legislation that he says is urgently needed to thwart another terrorist attack. The Senate, Ashcroft said, was not moving with sufficient speed. Talk, he complained, won't prevent terrorism, adding that he was... Deeply concerned about the rather slow pace at which the legislation legislation was moving. Dashell reports the article supported Lee. Although he was committed to seeing the legislation passed quickly, Dashell said that the doubted that he doubted the Senate could take up the legislation before next week. In other words, the October 5th deadline would not be met. Leahy and Dashell were the only Democratic senators mentioned in the article. Although this small act of resistance may seem trivial to us today, Republican Senator Orrin Hatch, supporting the administration, noted at the time, it's a very dangerous thing. Apparently, it was indeed a very dangerous thing. Shortly after the October 5th deadline passed with no reenactment of the bill, letters containing anthrax spores were sent to Senators Lay and Daschle. These letters were put in the mail sometime between October 6th and October 9th. Okay, so now on... October 15th, a Washington newspaper would report on the front page, Hill braces for anthrax attack. And later that day, Dashiell's intern would open a letter containing anthrax spores, along with a letter that ended in, Allah is great. And since the anthrax was aerosolized, many in the Senate building would be exposed to the anthrax. Um, It being aerosolized is just, exactly what it sounds like it's making it to where it distributes better in the air a lot of the times anthrax powder can tend to clump and stuff like that but there are things that big wig scientists who are much smarter than i am can do to manipulate it to where it does not clump and it spreads easier to where it is more deadly so thanks to all the big wig scientists out there for coming up with cool shit like that and keeping the world running Um, So the building had to be evacuated. Uh, There are two separate versions of the Patriot Act at this time. And they would have to be made into one. um, They would have to be synthesized together. And this would have to be done in temporary office spaces. Because no one is in the Hart Senate building at this point. And it was all pretty... Rough's not the right word. It... I mean, people are doing it in, like, offices. There's not good access to computers. People are writing down things on, like, notepads to, like, maybe consider putting into the bill or something like that. I mean, just crazy shit. And so we, um, on the 26th, Bush signed the bill into law. And once again, I think it's interesting to note that Daschle and Leahy never actually opposed the bill. But they really only delayed the process of it passing, and they wanted to modify just a couple things. Nothing all that crazy. But what do you have it? They still get attacked by those you know, crazy Islamic terrorists, if we're to believe the media on the issue. But we're going to get real deep into why there's probably more to it. But I thought that it was instructive to look at how the two senators who happen to get letters of anthrax happen to be the ones who stand in the way of the Patriot Act, getting pushed through at light speed by people like Ashcroft. And so this attack also would be further effective in not only terrorizing the public, but government officials in the nation's capital. And so while more could be said Let's go ahead and look into who exactly could have been responsible for this attacks and all the incidents that strongly suggest foreknowledge by certain people, or you could even say a certain group of people with a certain neoconservative bent in their ideology. But anyhow, let's get into it so almost immediately after the attacks the media began to speculate with no evidence that the attack had been carried out by a foreign group obviously that foreign group being al-qaeda as the main suspect as well as possibly iraq backing al-qaeda and so i don't need to explain a whole lot to such a well-informed audience as the one that i have how this fell particularly in line with the agenda of the neocon cabal who was guiding U.S. foreign policy, who still to this day guide U.S. foreign policy and their plans for the Middle East that long predate 9-11. You know, the PNAC guys, the ones who are waiting for a new Pearl Harbor so that way they can assert U.S. hegemony across the globe. But anyhow, the Al-Qaeda narrative was not hard to sell to a public who had just been told that it was Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, who is responsible for the 9-11 attacks. You know, it was the cave-dwelling dialysis-taking boogeyman who is responsible for all of our problems, and that's why we can't have nice things like civil liberties and what have you. And it doesn't hurt that the media had already implanted the idea in people's head that Al-Qaeda may commit a biological attack. And we have stories of a possible biological attack coming as early as September 22nd, when the Washington Post said, Soon after last week's terrorist attacks, federal health authorities told public health agencies to be on alert for unusual disease patterns associated with today's events, a bureaucratically phrased but nonetheless chilling hint of fear that the nation might be under biological attack. Uh, the, the article goes even further to state that anthrax could be a potential weapon, and how dangerous anthrax is because the symptoms may go unrecognized for a time, just like how it could be unrecon- it could be recognized as the cold or the flu before it's truly diagnosed, which is really chilling thought, given the fact that many of the people. Who began showing signs were not recognized as anthrax off the bat in the anthrax attacks that were to happen not long later, and so people were also quick to believe in the Al Qaeda narrative because the Bush administration said that a second attack by a second attack by Al Qaeda uh, could happen due to the invasion of Afghanistan. There would also be allegations thrown around that Al-Qaeda had an interest in procuring bioweapons, for instance. Yet another Washington Post article titled, Al-Qaeda may have accrued cr- a, a chemical germ capabilities. Um, there was also some evidence, which we will dive into in detail later, to suggest a connection between the attacks and the 9-11 hijackers, if we have the time um, because we have a lot to get through in this episode, but if we don't get to it today, perhaps I'll do a follow-up episode because I do want to talk about the connections between the 9/11 hijackers and the anthrax attacks, and it's a it's very interesting. But given the, in short, given the location of both the hijackers and where the letters were sent and where they were received, led people to believe that possibly there was a connection between the two. Um, There's also additional evidence that we will break down um, later, you know, once again, you know, if we have the time, but um, anyways, it's clear from the text of the letter themselves that whoever was the true perpetrator of these anthrax attacks, they were trying to scapegoat Muslims and they were trying to draw a connection between these attacks and the 9-11 attacks in the mind of those um, of the American public. So let's take, for instance, the Tom Brokaw letter, um, a letter that was sent to Tom Brokaw, which reads 091101, uh, this is next. Take penicillin now. Deaf to America, deaf to Israel. Allah is great. Uh, pretty similar wording as the letter that was sent to Senator Daschle, which reads 91101, you cannot stop us. You have the anthrax. You die now. Are you afraid? Deaf to America, deaf to Israel. Allah is great. Pretty comedic, honestly, just how sloppy they are in trying to you know pin this on on the Islamic people. But anyhow, we'd have the New York Times, the infamous bastion of journalism, Um, Who would report on October 12th that the FBI was extremely doubtful that the anthrax and 9-11 attacks were linked But that wouldn't stop them from just a handful of days later on the 16th saying that such a link is now at the center of their investigation there being the FBI So before we dive into who may have been truly responsible for the attacks And this is just some of the instances In the media of foreknowledge of the attacks predicting a possible attack but um, before we dive into who is truly responsible for the attacks let's take a look into what McQueen calls the double perpetrator hypothesis that Al Qaeda did the attacks but that they had a state sponsor that being Iraq so McQueen notes how this narrative had the ability to explain to the public the crudeness of sending anthrax through the mail also explaining how such perpetrators would have access to sophisticated B anthracis spores by lying the blame at the feet of Iraq which had at one point possessed a stockpile of anthrax you know because we have this sophisticated form of B anthracis that's aerosolized to where it spreads in the air and is even more dangerous and it's very hard to see you know how a guy in a cave or whatever would be responsible for this. So many neocons played into this narrative, which makes perfect sense, um, not in the light of the evidence at hand, but when one considers their ulterior motives and, you know, promoting invasion of the Middle East and asserting American hegemony across the globe and in that region in specific. So um, another example we have of, some kind of weird foreknowledge is neocon charles krauthammer um the german hammer i don't know um charles krauthammer who would support this narrative in an article he wrote for the observer on october 5th only a day after Stephen was announced in the press conference to have had anthrax sickness but you know nothing was yet known as to whether it was an attack or whether he could have. Receive this from the environment, you know, because, I mean, you can get anthrax from eating an undercooked burger. Um, So McQueen writes, Krauthammer did not even mention Stevens or his disease in the article. Nonetheless, after ranting about biological attacks and the importance of going after enemy states with weapons of mass destruction, he observed, you do not make weaponized anthrax in caves. For that, you need serious scientists and serious laboratories like the one in Baghdad. Uh, The comment was bizarre. There was no credible evidence of weaponized anthrax anywhere on the scene when he wrote the article. After October 15th, discussions of weaponized anthrax grounded in study of the attack spores became increasingly common. An attempt was made to use the physical characteristics of the anthrax spores to establish Iraq as the source of the spores, but it was a risky move, and it ultimately backfired, discrediting both foreign group hypotheses and almost exposing The perpetrators so one of the ways that they tried to tie this to Iraq is they said that there was bentonite in the anthrax and that this is a hallmark of Saddam's biological weapons program which uh, you know we we figured out that there were no weapons of, of mass destruction and even the official narrative today of the anthrax attacks is that it was not you know Muslim terrorists who carried out the attacks, but let's dive deeper into the real holes in this version of events That will ultimately lead us closer to who the real perpetrators of the attacks are so what's very arguably in my opinion the strongest evidence against the idea that either Al-Qaeda or You know Al-Qaeda with Iraq's help or the help of some other state sponsor provided the anthrax what really knocks a hole in this theory is that the strain of anthrax in question is the Ames strain so when the FBI would draw up a detailed list of laboratories in possession of the Ames strain they found that it belonged to 15 US labs and three foreign ones and it probably goes without saying that Iraq and al-Qaeda did not factor into the question as who was in possession of the Ames strain McQueen makes this interesting observation. Another possible reason for use of the AIM strains by the perpetrator was that they intended from the outset to frame one or more persons within the U.S. microbiology community. If such parties could have been credibly connected to the AIM strain and portrayed as acting on behalf of Iraq, they would have been good candidates for framing. Ayad Assad, a scientist who apparently had been subjected to racial harassment while working for the United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, could have been that candidate. He had worked for USA Emirate until 1997. On October 2, 2001, the FBI received a letter, postmarked on September 26, calling Assad a potential biological terrorist. It is difficult to believe that this was a coincidence given the attacks were under underway were not yet made perf um were not yet made public um so the fbi for reasons unknown they would not follow up on the assad lead after interviewing him and it is also worth noting how um you know and we'll return to assad in just a little bit but it's also worth noting how complex and well aerosolized the spores were and how much modification they had undergone from their natural state which you know does not suggest uh, somebody with a not well uh, with a not impressive biological warfare you know research uh, facility but daschle would say of the spores in his memoir the researchers were shocked to confirm not only the high aerosol Aerosolizability of this anthrax, but its ability to re aerosolize so readily a month after the original spill. Dashiell would also say that scientists at um, US Amrit, which is according to the official story now, it was, you know, a disgruntled uh, researcher at the facility who would send these letters out. So we're supposed to believe that it's from US Amrit at this point. But um, anyways, Daschle would say that the researchers there would have a difficult time keeping it under the microscope long enough to examine it. That's how aerosolizable um, it was. It's a hard word to pronounce. But much more could be said ultimately about the failure to frame Iraq despite relentless propaganda by, you know, neocon politicians and mainstream media pundits and the FBI and stuff. Um, But anyways... While this failure failed to take place, what would happen is that the FBI would resort to an entirely different narrative altogether, yet another narrative that fails when it's held up to scrutiny. So on August 6, 2022, um, not 2022, um, I believe I meant to put 2012 down in my notes, but Ashcroft would name scientist Stephen Hatfield as a person of interest. Oh I should have said 2001. I thought that we were already getting to the Bruce Ivins. Who's who we're supposed to believe did it. Um, so. On August 6 of 2002. Ashcroft named scientist Stephen Hatfield. As a person of interest. And the FBI would turn their attention to him. So. Only a year later Hatfield would actually sue the Justice Department for libel. And he would be awarded. Over 5.8 million dollars. And FBI investigator Richard Lambert who was in charge of the FBI's anthrax investigation said that the lawsuit could jeopardize the probe and expose national secrets related to US bioweapons defense measures. But something that's also interesting is that Lambert would later file a federal whistleblower lawsuit where he said the FBI greatly obstructed and impeded the investigation. So. Whitney Webb would write in her article, All Roads Lead to Dark Winter, which is going to be another one of our primary resources for today. And I will link that article and the three-part series that it's the first part in in the description below. So I recommend everyone go check it out. But she would write, Former FBI agent Richard Lambert's whistleblower lawsuit would later reveal that the FBI had intentionally withheld a wealth of evidence that proved Ivan's innocence. That's Bruce Ivins, who is the person who would eventually be accused of being the real anthrax perpetrator, disgruntled guy. Um, anyways, and further charged that the Department of Justice and FBI had crafted an elaborate perception management campaign to bolster their assertion of Ivan's guilt that included press conferences and highly selective evidentiary presentations which were replete with material omissions. After Ivan's suicide, questions continued to arise regarding the FBI's case against the deceased scientist, with several journalists and even Senator Patrick Leahy, who had been sent an anthrax letter insisting that the fbi's case against ivan's particularly the charge that he had acted alone was implausible a former co-worker of ivan's and one of the country's top biowarfare experts richard spurzel asserted in the wall street journal that ivan's could not have been the culprit because ivan's did not know how to make anthrax of the quality used in the attacks as only four to five people in the entire country spurzel being one of them knew how to do so spurzel asserted that one of those four to five people would have needed at least a year as well as a full lab and staff to dedicate to the to dedicate to the task in order to produce the anthrax use so um jumped a little bit ahead of myself but ultimately the fbi would announce that dr bruce ivins who was an employee of the united states army research medical research institute of infectious diseases quite the mouthful the Fort Detrick lab was the perpetrator of the anthrax attacks. So, Ivans would just so happen to die shortly after he was deemed the culprit. What would you know? Suicide. No letter left. And no autopsy to be performed. So, whether or not he actually committed suicide is anyone's guess, but... McQueen in his book, The 2001 Anthrax Deception, I think notes that if he actually did commit suicide, the FBI harassment and pressure placed on him bears some responsibility for his demise. But I think, you know, with there not even being any autopsy or anything, that it's reasonable to have some doubts about whether it is that he actually committed suicide in the first place. But now I'll read from McQueen. But the case against Ivan was subjected to serious critique from the beginning. On October 6, 2009, attorney Barry Kissin, responding to an invitation by one of Congressman Rush Holt's aides, submitted a detailed and historically important memo to Mr. Holt's office on the anthrax attacks and the associated cover-up. In his submission, Kissin showed that the anthrax spores, clearly from a domestic source, had been subjected to sophisticated processes that would have been impossible for a lone wolf perpetrator to perform. He pointed out that the domestic U.S. anthrax program had undergone had gone underground when Nixon ordered the destruction of biological weapons materials in 1969, but that during the late 1990s, the CIA was directly involved in the development of both weaponized anthrax and the means of delivering it as a weapon. Because of these clandestine programs, he argued, the U.S. military-industrial complex possessed prior to the anthrax attacks all the elements essential for those attacks, these elements included... The aim strain of anthrax, methods of refining the spores to achieve the right size and uniformity for maximum lethality, lethality, and a method of promoting dispersibility through the addition of silicon to the spores. Kissin referred to as w- referred as well to domestic studies relevant to sending the attack spores through the mail. In 1999, William Patrick, the original inventor of anthrax weaponization, was commissioned to do an analysis of a hypothetical anthrax attack through the mail for the CIA. Ultimately, this classified document was leaked to the media. In his report, entitled Risk Assessment, Patrick explained that 2.5 grams is the amount that can be placed into a standard envelope without detection, and the anthrax letters addressed to the senators contained about 2 grams of anthrax. In a footnote, Patrick noted that the U.S. had refined, weaponized anthrax powder to the unprecedented extent of a trillion spores per gram. The degree of refinement corresponds with the extraordinary purity of the anthrax in the letters addressed to the senators. So, Kisson would go on to argue that one of the main suspects in creating the anthrax should be the Patel Memorial Institute which is a military and CIA contractor who helped to weaponize anthrax in the late 90s. And so obviously this would put a big hole in the official story because if it did not come from the Fort Detrick lab, but if it instead came from the Patel Memorial Institute, then it could not have been Bruce Ivins who was the one going around sending these anthrax letters. And it should be noted that Patel had the facilities to work with dry anthrax as opposed to the laboratory in Fort Detrick, at least if we're listening to Kissin, And so Kisson would also point out how the FBI would work to keep Patel's name out of the investigation, as well as the silicone and the anthrax not being mentioned in the investigation, which is a signature of U.S. weaponization of anthrax. And so evidence would continue to mount against the FBI's narrative. And some of these are from unlikely places. Um, And it wasn't intentional. It's not like they set out to you know put holes in the FBI's case or anything like that it's just that if we look at what they have to say as opposed to what the FBI has been saying the narratives don't line up and so one of those would be a study from the National Academy of Sciences report and on the attacks and another Uh, place would be two articles that were published by Martin Hugh Jones Barbara Rosenberg and Stuart Jacobson for the Journal of bioterrorism and biodefense and so the latter publication would hypothesize that the spores were coated in silicone using a tin catalyst and They say that the measures needed to do this are complex and highly esoteric processes that would not that could not possibly have been carried out by a single individual they would require a laboratory with specialized capabilities and expertise not found at United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. So these this research would then begin to explore the potential of silicone microencapsulation, which still would require a state laboratory of some sort. So, you know, they're kind of developing this theory even further. further. And McQueen summarizes The researchers had by this time come to suspect that both Tin and B. subtilis, a contaminant of the attack spores, originated at Dugway Proving Ground, the U.S. Army testing ground in Utah, and they suggested Dugway, possibly in close collaboration with Battelle, as the source of the spores. They expressed the opinion that the microencapsulated spores may not have been prepared especially for the attack letters, but may have been already present in a U.S. military program, being then removed by a person or by persons for the 2001 attack. And um, the researchers themselves would summarize their research as follows The process of spore microencapsulation requires special expertise, specific documented chemicals, and sophisticated facilities. The known clues point to Dugway or Battelle, not U.S. Amarid, as the site where the attack spores prepared. Crucial evidence that would prove or disprove these points either has not been pursued or has not been released by the FBI. Okay, so the FBI, you know, they say that Ivans could not properly account for overtime he spent at the lab. He said that he was there. You know, late at nine and that he was working on prepping for his upcoming attacks and that they would, the FBI would also say that this kind of overtime was unprecedented in his work history. But three separate publications, including PBS Frontline, would conclude that he was doing legitimate work during his extra hours and that the extra hours that the FBI claimed were abnormal, out of place, were said by these publications to have not been so out of the ordinary. So, once again, we'll go back to McQueen. Doubts about the time required to prepare the anthrax spores were also expressed by other researchers. In an interview with ProPublica, Dr. Henry Hine, a former supervisor of Ivan's at U.S. AMRA, had said that the periods in Ivan's schedule identified by the FBI's as opportunity to prepare the spores... The 34 more hours in the B3 suite than the task the FBI alleged he was performing, the 34 hours, Heinz said, are more than 8,000 hours, close to a year short of what he would have needed to grow the anthrax. And Hein also added that it would have been impossible for Ibans to have prepared the anthrax without his colleagues being aware of it. <laughs> Talk about some more oddities in the FBI's investigation of the anthrax. So, on October 12th of 2001, so this is you know just a week after the anthrax attacks had took its taken its first victim, the FBI would call the University of Iowa and would tell them to destroy their entire database on the Ames strain of anthrax. And so this is very interesting because this is, you know, the form of anthrax that would be proven in just a short time to be the one used in the attacks. So a very strange thing for the FBI to do. The FBI would also find human DNA in the letter sent to Lee, but for some reason that is, you know, inexplicable unless you are trying to cover up the truth of the matter, they refuse to find a human match for this dna and so despite all of this it would end up being settled that you know the official narrative is that it was a lone madman who worked at the united states army medical research institute of infectious disease but before we move on there is some more interesting things to say about what was going on in fort dietrich maryland So, during the administration of Bush Sr., highly deadly pathogens of Ebola, anthrax, hantavirus, and AIDS, an AIDS variant, and two unknown, which, you know, presumably classified specimens, would just happen to go missing. And these would never be found, and an army spokesperson would say, what I would say, ridiculously, is that they were most likely thrown out with the trash, which um, perhaps there was a garbage man who had a very bad day at work. But Whitney Webb, uh, Whitney Webb would write in her investigative piece, All Roads Lead to Dark Winter, an internal army inquiry in 1992 would reveal that one employee, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel Philip Je- Philip Je- Zack, had been caught on camera secretly entering the lab to conduct unauthorized research, apparently involving anthrax. The Hartford Courant would later report Despite this, Zach would continue to do infectious disease research for pharmaceutical giant Eli Lilly and would elaborate, collaborate with the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease throughout the 1990s. The Courant had also noted that "...a numerical counter on a piece of the lab equipment had been rolled back to hide work done by the mystery researcher, later revealed to be Zach, who left the misspelled labeled anthrax in the machine's electronic memory." The Courant's report further detailed the extremely lax security controls and chaotic disorganization that, the, that characterized the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases lab in Fort Detrick. This same lab would, a decade later, be officially labeled as the source of the anthrax spores responsible for the 2001 attacks, which were also officially said to have been the work of a deranged U.S. Amerid researcher. So, it is interesting to note that Zach Phillips, lieutenant colonel, he would continue to conduct unauthorized research at Fort Detrick, and he was also, and this is very interesting, the Islamic man, uh, Assad, who we formerly mentioned, who was being bullied and harassed by, you know, co-workers of his, one of the people who was harassing him was who else but lieutenant colonel zach phillip so all very interesting stuff but anyways we will um also just before we move off the subject of u.s samrid in july of 2019 the same fort dietrich lab that would be shut down by the C- cdc after it was um, this is the same for Teacher Glide that I believe the Anthrax came from would be shut down by the CDC after it was discovered an accurate inventory of toxin was not being kept and the closure due to these violations of biosafety protocols would be hidden from Congress and then the lab would be reopened in November before all the issues had even been resolved. So, once again, I'm going to read from Whitney Webb and then we'll move on to some more instances of foreknowledge. The same day that the lab was controversially allowed to partially reopen, which was the result of heavy lobbying from the Pentagon, local news outlets reported that the lab had suffered two breaches of containment last year, though the nature of those breaches and the pathogens involved were redacted in the inspection findings report obtained by the Frederick News Post. Notably, US has since the 1980s worked closely with virologists and virology labs in Wuhan, China where the first epicenter of the current novel coronavirus cases emerged. The Chinese government has since alleged that the virus had been brought to China by members of the U.S. military, members of which attended the World Military Games in the country last October. So while all that should be enough to seriously bring into question the official narrative and to suggest that there is possibly some sort of domestic group in the United States who was responsible for the attacks, Let's begin to dive just a little bit deeper into possible foreknowledge of the attacks. So, foreknowledge of the attacks. Once again, I'm going to be reading from Graham McQueen. Bridget Nacos, in her book, Mass-Mediated Terrorism, relates that her research has revealed a huge wave of advance warnings in the US media, including 76 references in the New York Times to biological or chemical terrorism. 27 of which specifically included anthrax between September 12th and October 3rd of 2001. That is to say, there were a plethora of bioweapons warnings in the New York Times before there was supposed to have been any knowledge of an actual anthrax attack. Of the 10 most intriguing warnings in the New York Times in the two weeks before that newspaper reported the first case, Most of the articles mention anthrax explicitly, and many show the involvement of U.S. government leaders in these warnings. Health Secretary Tommy Thompson, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, Attorney General John Ashcroft, and White House Chief of Staff Andrew Card were among those involved. What is bound to strike an investigator looking back at the anthrax attack is not that the government was caught off guard, but that key government officials seem to have had foreknowledge of the attacks. And this propaganda seems to have been effective, at least if we are to trust a poll by Newsweek that was published on September 23rd that showed 8 out of 10 Americans thought that a biological attack was likely. And so there were other outlets aside from the New York Times, although the New York Times probably had the largest amount of, you know, instances of foreknowledge of some short some sort there were other outlets that would report on the possibility of biological attacks and anthrax attacks to be specific so the washington post published an article entitled experts won't rule out another attack in u.s where newt gingrich would warn the next stage after this will be chemical biological and nuclear weapons um so then two days after that Um, there would be another where it says senior administration officials took to the airwaves to warn the Americans about the possibility of a new attack in the days ahead. Um, another person to have said some stuff, the always interesting Donnie Rumsfeld, you know, Mr. Missing 2.3 trillion would warn that a terrorist attack can happen at any time and at any place. But let's look into some examples of more specific fear-mongering, both by politicians and the mainstream media. Um, The Washington Post would publish bioterrorism, an even more devastating threat by Rick Weiss on September 17th, and in it, it says, Biological attacks can be far more difficult to respond to than conventional terrorist attacks. For one thing, they are covert rather than overt. For days, no one would know one occurred that's a huge problem for a disease like anthrax very interesting because as stated earlier for a while people who had been infected with anthrax weren't even being diagnosed with that you know because the symptoms can go um unre- you know be construed as being a cold or the flu um, another example would be on Octo- on September excuse me 26 maureen dowd would claim in the new york times that upper middle class women were carrying cipro in their little black prada techno nylon bags um, the day after dowd's article the new york times would publish another article titled anthrax scare prompts run on antibiotic and the amb- antibiotic it's talking about is cipro which is used to um you know prevent infection from anthrax and it's of note that the White House, White House staff had been placed on Cipro on the day of the 9-11 attacks. And we will discuss that a little bit more later. But on this note, the public interest group Judicial Watch would actually file a lawsuit against U.S. government agencies um, and wanted to know why White House staff, including Bush himself, had been on the drug for almost a month before the attacks. Um, Richard Cohen, a Washington Post columnist, would say in Slate Magazine in March of 2008, I had been told soon after September 11th to secure Cipro, the antidote to anthrax. The tip had come in a roundabout way from a high government official, and I immediately acted on it. I was carrying Cipro way before most people had even heard of it. And... Who did this come from? We'll get into him in depth, but we know that it was Jerome Hauer who was actually telling people to get on Cipro, and we will talk about Jerome Hauer in depth later. Um, But another example of possible foreknowledge of the attacks, this one interesting being an instance of possible predictive programming. In relation to the anthrax attacks, was a mini series planned for NBC called Terror. Um, work had begun on the show on October 24th of 2001, and filming was set to begin on September 24th. And the show was supposed to have Al Qaeda setting off a, a bomb in the New York subway, followed by an anthrax attack. And McQueen mentions another show that eerily foreshadows the anthrax attacks in his book. There was also a CBS series about the CIA that had been written apparently before September 11th and began to be broadcast in late September. One show in the series involved a planned terrorist attack in the U.S. using anthrax. The CIA in this story discovers that perpetrators intended to use a crop duster plane to spray the deadly disease. The theme of the CBS story is said to have been suggested by a CIA consultant working with CBS. Um, Another interesting example of possible foreknowledge is the New York Times on September 30th publishing an article with the headline, Some experts say U.S. is vulnerable to a germ attack. And this article would mention anthrax as well. And it's worth noting that the anthrax letters were in circulation at the time of the article's publication. And, you know, there are many more instances of both media and government officials Having what seems to be a likely foreign knowledge of the attacks, or you know i don 't want to make it seem like everybody knew that the anthrax attacks was going to happen, but it seems as if some people are seeding this narrative to people in the media and what have you so that someone has some sort of foreknowledge of this attack, and you know apparently they did a good job of instilling fear into everyone because you know there was a run on Cipro. As mentioned in the New York Times article, anthrax scare prompts run on ambio- antibiotic, and you know there's you know a pharmacist in the article who's like, we can't keep it in stock and and what have you. But now let's look into another interesting example of what is very likely foreknowledge of the attack, and I think that this is the most interesting one, and that is Dark Winter so what is dark winter well less than three months before the anthrax attacks would begin to circulate on june 22nd through the 23rd a biological warfare simulation called dark winter was ran at andrews air force base and it was led by a whole host of groups the main one being the john hopkins center for civilian biodefense strategies which is part of the john hopkins center for health security And, you know, think Event 201, the coronavirus simulations that happened to take place very shortly before we would start seeing the first cases of COVID so you know very interesting but they would host this along with the oklahoma national memorial institute for the prevention of terrorism which i assume was created after the murrow building bombings that was also likely perpetrated by the cia as well as the center for strategic and international studies which is a think tank i think that they still do stuff to this day and then the analytic analytic services institute for homeland security and this scenario because it's a simulation you know the scenario starts with small a smallpox outbreak in oklahoma and then eventually three cities have smallpox released on them by terrorists and then in december of 2002 um, when the christmas season arrives sixteen thousand people in 25 different states are infected with the disease which then spreads to 10 separate countries And so while this may seem altogether different than the anthrax attacks, you know, because it's like, oh, well, people do pandemic simulations sometimes in order to be prepared in case of the outbreak of something. And this is talking about smallpox that doesn't really have any similarities with anthrax. Let's look into the exercise a little bit closer. I just dropped the pen that i was fiddling with um, but anyways let's look into the simulation a little bit closer to see some of the parallels that exist between simulation and reality um, sometimes the two are a little bit too close for comfort and so the title of the event dark winter um, before we get into some of the interesting similarities just to of interesting note comes from robert catholic who the Whitney web series that I'm going to link in the description. Um, the third part of the series is all about Robert Cadlick, who would go on to be uh, lead the HHS uh, response to coronavirus, and I believe that he would be the one to. Uh, I I believe that he was the one who oversaw the Crimson Contagion pandemic simulation that happened shortly p- before co- coronavirus happened because i believe that that went through january through august of 2019 or something like that i believe he was the one who ran it double check into it don't if if, if it's wrong do i want to tell you the wrong scene, wrong thing but anyways so in the dark winter exercises letters containing threats and threats of future anthrax attacks are sent to mainstream media And these anonymous letters are able to help identify the strain of smallpox that is being used by the terrorists. Because each letter contained a genetic fingerprint of the smallpox strain, matching the fingerprint of the strain, causing the current epidemic. That comes from the Dark Winter script. But anyways, in the simulation, among the deaths of people is of a high up government official. I think it was like the Secretary of State or something in the dark winter scenario so um but also in this, sim- in this simulation osama bin Laden is one of the main suspects of the attack and as the events in the scenario unfold they begin to theorize that perpetrators may have been a state or a terrorist group with state sponsorship so there's another parallel between the anthrax attacks and this dark winter simulation and a list of key suspects is given to the FBI and the CIA, and it's a shortlist with Iraq being one of the primary suspects. So later in the simulation, and I quote, a prominent Iraqi defector is claiming that Iraq arranged the Iraq arranged the bioweapons attack on the US through intermediaries. And McQueen draws a parallel to stories circulating in the media around the time of the real-life anthrax attacks. When he says many WMD claims are made by Iraqi defectors. On october eleventh, as the perpetrators of the anthrax attacks are being sought, the Washington Post carries an article on one such defector remarking and I'm gonna mispronounce this Kidir. Hamza knows too well that if the terrorist network that hit the World Trade Center in the Pentagon has access to nuclear and biological weapons, it is probably through Iraq, through the weapons program that he headed until his escape in 1994. So on the note of the supposed Iraqi connection to the attack, I'm going to read once again from Whitney Webb's article, All Roads Lead to Dark Winter, where she writes, Since this exercise occurred in June 2001, the heavy hinting that Saddam Hussein led Iraq and Al-Qaeda are the main suspects is notable. Indeed, at one point in one of the fictional news reports used in the exercise, the reporter states that Iraq might have provided the technology behind the attacks to terrorist groups based in Afghanistan. Such claims that Iraq's government was linked to al-Qaeda in Afghanistan would reemerge months later in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks, and would be heavily promoted by several dark winter participants, such as former CIA director James Woolsey, who would later swear under oath that Saddam Hussein was involved in 9-11. It would of course later emerge that Iraq's connection to al-Qaeda and the 9-11 attacks were non-existent as well as the fact that Iraq did not possess biological weapons or other weapons of mass destruction. Okay, so that's all very interesting, but let's go back to some similarities between the Dark Winter Exercise and the real-life anthrax attacks. So another similarity in the simulation to the real-life attacks is the crackdown on civil, li- civil liberties. And in the simulation, it goes so far as to possibly include martial law. Now, fortunately for all of us here in America, martial law did not take place after the anthrax tax. But in real life, it would be, you know, the Patriot Act, NSA surveillance, you know, mass surveillance, the establishment of military tribunals, and the war on terror. You know, there's all kinds of examples of the loss of civil liberties. And it's also interesting that in the dark winter exercises, the people begin to clamor for a medical solution. And we see in real life, you know, like the Washington Post saying that the day after the anthrax attacks, you know, in relation to, to, to Cipro, that people are on their hands and knees begging for drugs. So all very interesting. And it's interesting that in both simulation and reality, there is increased tensions between the public and Arabic people. And finally, in the simulation, the perpetrator is determined to most likely be Iraq. And this would also be the line given to the public about the real-world anthrax, anthrax attacks by, you know, neoconservatives and the political and media sphere. Oh, I almost forgot on the note of the, you know, loss of civil liberties and stuff like that. Another thing that's interesting in the Dark Winter exercise is the problem of misinformation circulating and stuff, which would end up being interesting because that would also be a part of the Event 201 exercise in relation to COVID, the problem of misinformation. And now what do we see that, I mean, probably with this episode, you're going to see something that suggests that you check out what the CDC has to say about COVID, you know, because I talk about it in this episode and I'm probably going to mention it in the description and We are all too familiar with now the Possibility of spreading misinformation and you know, you shouldn't listen to bad things like things observed instead Go listen to the CDC or the World Health Organization and get the truth from them So anyways now let's talk about some of the participants in dark winter and their relations to the anthrax attacks and even one with 9 11 and to the COVID stuff that's going on now. And we can see some of the continuity of agenda in that. But, anyways, let's dive into some of these folks. So, let's start off with Judith Miller, old Judy here. So, one of the players in Dark Winter was Judith Miller, and she probably had an easy time as McQueen rightfully notes in his book playing her role as a New York Times journalist in the simulation because she was a New York Times journalist in real life if you can even call her a journalist but um, she was on October 26th. she would co-author an article with William Broad and they would claim that there was bentonite in the anthrax and this is one of the things that was you know tried to used to frame Iraq as having some sort of responsibility in supplying the terrorist with this anthrax. Because, you know, bentonite is supposedly a hallmark of the Iraqi weapons program. Uh, Miller would also co-author a book with Broad, as well as Stephen Ingelsberg entitled Germs, which would claim that Iraq had an ongoing bioweapons program, and interestingly the book was published on october 2nd the same day that the first inhalation anthrax victim was taken to the hospital and the anthrax attacks seemed to really help out old judy here with her book sales because after the anthrax attacks it would help launch her book to becoming a new york times bestseller and would also help further propagandize the public about iraq and its alleged bio warfare program and this book would actually be held up by if I remember correctly, people in the Bush administration trying to you know say that Saddam needs to be taken out and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, I actually got a quote here in my notes about it. Um We'll get to that in just a second, but you know the story doesn't end there on October twelfth. Miller would actually receive a letter containing inert powder at her office in the New York Times. She is the one at the New York Times who received one of these anthrax letters, but Lucky for old Judy here, it was not real anthrax that was in it. It was just, I don't even know what it was, but some sort of inert powder that I guess was made to just further terrorize people. Someone wanted to scare the shit out of Judy. Uh, she receives one of the anthrax letters, and she just so happens to be one of the people who uh, is concerned with bio-warfare and all that this stuff. So, I don't know, interesting stuff, but... This would help, ultimately, to further promote her book as well as giving her something to write about. Um, journalist Alex Perine, this is the quote I was talking about, would write about her role in promoting Iraq propaganda leading up to the invasion and he just kind of tells it like it is, so this is a pretty fun quote. She was hyping bullshit stories about Iraq's WMD capabilities as far back as 1998 and in the run-up to the war. Her front-page scoops were cited by the Bush administration as evidence that Saddam needed to be taken out right away. So, she would be let go from the New York Times in 2005. Um, One could wonder if it's about, because, you know, the fact that her Claims about Iraq were proven to be patently false, but who knows? But anyways, let's get into another one of these Dark Winter players. My personal pick for the most interesting guy, most likely, in this whole Dark Winter narrative. Uh, His name is Jerome Hauer, so he's not only a curious case in the story of the anthrax attacks, but also in the 9-11 attacks and even the recent COVID-19 vaccine. So, Howard was instrumental in linking the 9-11 and the anthrax together in the public mind. And let's just get a little bit into his background. A New York Times article would discuss Howard's hospital vice president mother, who would help him when he was 15 get a job in the hospital morgue, where his job consisted of cutting open the guts and cleaning it and pinning it and making it ready for the pathologist to review. Quite the job for a 15-year-old. But the Times would continue to say that he likes guts, viscera, innards, the stuff things are made of. So, I don't know. We've got Hauer, who at the age of 15 is playing around with dead bodies. Pretty interesting. But he would go on to get a master's degree in emergency medical services from John Hopkins. And his whole life he... Uh, I he's still kicking around. His whole life has basically just been to being a crazy paranoid guy who's always dreaming of ways the world's going to end. Uh, he would uh, be a member of the neoconservative think tank, the Committee on the Present Danger, which is interesting in its own right. Sorry if there's a dramatic edit there. The dog was going bonkers. But anyways, yeah, the Committee on the Present Danger was... Formed during the Cold War, starting in the 50s, and they would just stir up fear of Russia as, you know, think tanks from the 50s in America were prone to do. And they were very influential in the Reagan administration. There would actually be 33 members of the committees who would find a role in the Reagan administration, if I remember properly. But uh, some of the people who were involved with this committee were Richard Pearl, CIA Director William Casey. Those are just a couple. And the committee would be revamped after it had been dormant for a while. And Howard would join. And recently the group has been promoting trade war with China and reparations for COVID. Which, uh, I don't know. We were also doing work in the Wuhan lab. So even if that's where the origin comes from. And I do think that that's likely. We also need to look at some stuff like DARPA and stuff like that too. But hey, what are you going to do? Uh, Fauci, um, but Howard would spend almost eight years working, and this is interesting to our story, at the U.S. Army Medical Research and Development Command, which oversees the Fort Dietrich Lab. Um, so Rudolph Giuliani, now let's just dive into some 9-11 stuff. So Rudolph Giuliani would take the job of keeping New Yorkers emergency prepared out of the hands of the police, and he would place that responsibility on on a special new office that he would create, the Office of Emergency Management. And he would make Jerome Howard its first ever director. But before his position in Giuliani's office, he would be the head of emergency management for IBM. And he would also be an advisor to the Justice Department. He would actually brief Bill Clinton on bioterror threats. And he regularly consulted with Israeli intelligence. So we've got Howard here connected Connected guy, some pretty interesting stuff going on around him, but it has been reported that it was actually Howard's idea to house the offices for emergency management in the World Trade Center 7 building, even though people were hesitant about this decision because of the 1993 World Trade Center bombings. But Howard would end up leaving his role of director of the Office of Emergency Management in 2000 only to take up a position in the World Trade Center as the managing director of Kroll Associates, a private security-slash-intelligence firm that's been described as the Wall Street's CIA, but I've also heard it compared to Black Cube or something like that, but I think that that the latter would be a more accurate representation. Um, French intelligence would even say that Kroll was a front for the CIA as described in an article in the Washington Post. But Kroll would also investigate Saddam Hussein, interesting, which shows the task of the company weren't limited to providing security services for the buildings. And it also just shows that, you know, you have this private intelligence firm where you have all these CIA and Mossad guys and stuff working, and they're looking into Saddam Hussein, so I'm sure that they can, you know, get to the bottom of it. Uh, Whitney Webb writes... In 1999, the New York Times would describe Howard's job as sitting around all day, thinking up horrifying ways for things to be destroyed and people to die. It would also note that Howard described his expertise regarding specific emergency situations as follows. Helicopter crash, subway fire, water main break, ice storm, heat wave blackout, building collapse, building collapse, building collapse. His obsession with building collapses even led him to house trophies of the building collapses he had overseen and reported to responded to how odd then that howard's multi-million dollar bunker itself would fall victim to building collapse falling into its own footprints in seven seconds on september 11th of 2001 so where was howard on september eleventh two 2001 well instead of being in his office On that day, Howard would be busy talking with Dan Rather, where he would say, you know, within no time of the attack, that Osama bin Laden was the one behind it. And it's also interesting to note that while on Rather's show, he would say that the reason for the collapse of the towers was weakening of the structure from the plane's impact and the towers on the tower, the plane's impact on the towers, and as well as the burning of jet fuel. So, it's very interesting when one considers considers that not a lot if any steel structured high rise buildings fall into their own footprint near free fall speed because of normal office fires or you know, in the case of World Trade Center seven or because of you know massive amounts of jet fuel yeah, just interesting that he was so on the ball when it came to it. And Howard would go on later that day to say on ABC News in an interview with Peter Jennings that he had heard of concerns for the building's structural stability before, which I'm not sure if this is right. Someone can double check me, but didn't they create the World Trade Center buildings with the possibility of a plane crashing into it in mind? Like, wasn't that one of the things that they factored into it when they built the building? I I don't know if that's true or not. Could just be something that I had heard, but I I think that 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 that's true. But anyways, I don't know. Sound off on me on Twitter or something if I'm stupid and I said the wrong thing. But another interesting thing, which is something that I ought to do a little bit more research to, but that Howard had FEMA come out on se- the day before 9/11, if I remember properly to host a, you know, possible bioweapon attack thing um, called Tripod 2, and so, you know, you have FEMA there, who show up the day before 9-11, and it was supposed to, I think, take place on September 12th, this drill that they were going to run. For it was either for pandemic or biological warfare. I think it was the latter. Once again, I should have done a little bit more research into it before I did this episode. But there are so many other things to dive into with this episode when I was trying to prepare. But these FEMA guys who had come out would actually end up helping with the 9/11 emergency response. But it's just interesting that on you know 9/11 that. This was that this was all going on, and especially when we think about all of Howard's other, you know, strange connections to to things concerning 9-11 and the anthrax attacks and how they were, you know, just happening to Howard's uh, telling people in the Bush administration to get on Cipro. We've got this Tripod 2 thing going on. He has worked at the Office of Emergency Management in the World Trade Center buildings. He, you know, Kroll employee, just all kinds of interesting stuff. But another Kroll employee, John O'Neill, was not as lucky as Howard. He was, you know, the leading expert on Osama bin Laden. But he would, you know, end up dying in the 9-11 attacks. So, I don't know, just all very interesting stuff. But anyhow, we will just move along with our story of Howard um, whitney webb writes howard had prepared for a scenario just like the anthrax attacks as part of the dark winter bio warfare simulation which occurred just months prior at a time when howard was a member of the john hopkins working group on civilian biodefense part of what is now the john hopkins center for health security then led by dark winter co-author tara o so interesting stuff Power would also, interestingly enough, work with Stephen Hatfield at the Scientific Applications International Corporation, where the two worked on handling anthrax and anthrax hoax letters. Hmm, interesting. And Hatfield would eventually be accused of committing the anthrax attacks, as we covered earlier, but he would eventually be cleared of the suspicion and the blame would be placed onto uh, Bruce Ivins. But... Howard would go on to push for anthrax vaccines from the company Bioport, and he would, you know, get contracts amongst government agencies for this Bioport vaccine. And Bioport would eventually change its name to Emergent Biosolutions after the Pentagon was sued for its mandatory Bioport vaccine program. The program would actually be deemed illegal by a court because the vaccine wasn't approved by the FDA for aerosol exposure to anthrax. So. How would go on to be a member of the Emergent Biosolutions board of directors, and he remains, unless it's just changed very recently, on the board to this day. So Emergent made vaccines not only for anthrax, but for Zika and other viruses, as well as having the monopoly on Narcan, you know, so... Uh, I guess that if, and I think that they've gotten in trouble for Narcan or people have wanted to get them in trouble for Narcan because they have a monopoly on it. And they charge like Buku's for Narcan and have, I think, maybe even like tried to suppress cheaper alternatives to it. Um, Yeah, yeah, they've sued any competitors, you know, who make a product for a similar price. So interesting stuff. But Emergent would also helped manufacture both the J&J and the AstraZeneca vaccines, and 2 to 3 million doses of AstraZeneca would have to be thrown away due to cross-contamination, as well as a batch of the Johnson & Johnson. And there would also be 15 million doses of J&J that would have to be discarded in a separate situation after employees started mixing and matching ingredients. They were getting crazy with it from two separate vaccines, you know. So, I don't know. It's interesting. Maybe they made the super vaccine and, you know, those evil people at the FDA were just hating on them for creating the ultra Get the UltraVax. But anyways, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where Howard formerly worked as head of the Office of Public Health and Preparedness, would make Emergent to cease its production of AstraZeneca. But later, in the year of 2021, the FDA told Emergent to shut down production so that they could investigate until they were eventually given the green light to make some more of that J&J. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Gotta love you some of that j j from Emergent Biosolutions. But so long as we're talking about pandemic simulations, you know, we mentioned earlier uh, the Event 201 simulation, which was hosted by the John Hopkins Center for Health Security, along with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the World Economic Forum, you know, where all of our friends are. And they would simulate, you know, a novel coronavirus pandemic only weeks before COVID-19 actually appeared. So, I mean, like Dark Winter, both foresaw economic disruptions Crackdown on civil liberties and the dangers of so-called misinformation. And then there was, you know, the, the Crimson Contagion pandemic simulation from January to August of 2019. And that would also, you know, kind of foreshadow some of the stuff that was to come with the real world coronavirus response. But um, another Dark Winter participant, Robert Cadlick, he would actually lead the exercise, and um, then he would lead the Department of Human and Health Services for their COVID response. So, yeah, check out the Whitney Webb articles that I linked down to to learn more about Cadlick. another very interesting guy in relation to the whole Dark Winter Simulations But let's talk about the last Dark Winter dude, although we could talk about all of them, whether it be Tara O'Toole or Cadillac. I mean, all these guys are, are very interesting. But anyways, we'll just talk a little bit about James Woolsey just because of his relation to the Anthrax attacks. But Woolsey, he would also have an easy time playing his role as the director of the CIA in the Dark Winter simulation because during the Clinton administration, he had been what else but the cia director and so now i'm going to read something from the institute for policy studies which said of Woolsey: Woolsey was an outspoken proponent of invading iraq even before 9 11. as a supporter of the project for the new american century the influential letterhead group founded by william crystal and robert kagan to champion a reaganite policy of military strength and moral clarity Woolsey signed several Open letters to government figures encouraging an aggressive military agenda. One such letter was PNAC's 1998 missive to Clinton, which served as the opening salvo in neoconservative efforts to support a U.S. invasion of Iraq. And finally, on Woolsey, I'll read something from McQueen, which just, you know, does a good job of talking about his possible foreknowledge, but. Woolsey began trying to implicate Iraq in the 9-11 attacks on the day itself and continued doing so thereafter when the anthrax attacks unfolded. He added them to the list of Iraq's likely crimes, telling the American Jewish Congress on October 22, 2001 that a war against Iraq should be waged quickly and ruthlessly. But Woolsey was not content to frame Iraq. He also played an important role in the wave of Islamophobia that hit the United States after the fall attacks he gave his support to such scurrilous productions as the volume sharia the threat to america and the dvd the third jihad radical islam's vision for america um while more could be said of Woolsey, i think that's good for the moment and i also think that this will conclude this episode perhaps i'll talk a little bit more about the anthrax attacks in uh the next episode we can just kind of You know, summarize the rest of the stuff that I wanted to get to But this has already gone over an hour and a half Uh, It's been a fun time talking about all this And perhaps we'll talk about the connection between the 9-11 hijackers And the whole anthrax stuff that was going on As well as some other weird stuff with the letters That involves, you know, trying to frame Iraq And possibly even Russia and the narrative of you know oh there's going to be these you know soviet defectors or not soviet defectors disgruntled people who used to formerly work in chemical weapons for the soviet union who are now you know giving their secrets over to iraq or some something like that you know this is how the evil terrorist got the anthrax you know never mind the fact that it's the aim strain and that it came from america and it's almost certainly you know but anyhow. We just went over all that stuff. There's no need to rehash that. But if you liked this episode, if you've been enjoying the show, leave a review on Apple or Spotify or whatever it is that you're using. That's helpful to me. It helps it to get to other people to get to see it. People click on the podcast and, you know, they go, "Oh, other people like this. It must be good." And then they're fooled. And you can help me fool them, you know, together we can help fool people into liking this show but anyways if you have something that you want to say to me good bad somewhere in between you can find me at thing observer on twitter you can also find threads that i put up there the dms are open so anybody even if i don't follow you you can message me i always like to hear back from you guys but anyways hopefully you guys had a fun time i thought that this was a fun one and i think that it's some prescient stuff because a lot of the times when the, I, I always get nervous anytime I see some sort of new simulation being run, like when the World Economic Forum was doing that cyber polygon thing with some other people, talking about a possible, uh, what do they call a cyber pandemic or whatever, you know, that that got me all worried, walking around being like, is the power grid going to be shut down so that they w- can bring in martial law or something? Just there's too many times where they're doing these I mean, on 9-11, they were doing their war game stuff that confused pilots and stuff like that, if I remember properly. You know, we got all this, whether it be Crimson Contagion, Event 201 in relation to COVID. We've got Dark Winter in relation to the anthrax attacks. I just don't like these guys playing games. Their games aren't any fun. They ought to find better games. But anyhow, hopefully you guys liked it and I will talk to all of y'all soon.
1: The That is of devil's design The dark side of science brings a weapon of war Contagious killing and eternal distress Homicide or suicide will be the cause of death Eternal war gets altered by the disease The brain disabled by the constant pain Erotic actions consciously my thoughts to the blade I've lost control, i lost control Big for your life you won't escape the night Your fate was sealed today Disease is spread, you pray for death Evisceration play. Overwhelms my mind Tear eyes, screaming, floods the dust of my night I wrench the blade From the chest to the crotch. Organs and ants fall to the ground. Fate for your life, you won't Escape the night, your fate Was sealed today Disease is spread You pray for death Evisceration play. Driven to kill This is not my will I am compelled to slay Invisible foe takes control, evisceration play Unable to receive but with visible effect, healing of disease causing outbreaks of violence, they tear themselves apart, all covers the bone. This is torn from the abdomen It tests us blood cannot escape my grip Surgical cool incisions, avoid defencing corny The nerve is taken off, as the moment is complete Horror creates my mind, my answers are in my hands My answers are in my hands, my answers are in my hands Play please to death Play Please to Play please to die Will be the remains of that. Our extinction was by our design. Think for your life, you won't escape the night. Your fate was sealed today. Disease is spread. You pray for death. Evisceration play. Driven to kill. This is not my will. I am compelled to slay. Invisible foe takes control. Evisceration plague